Uh, We're going to primarily be this morning in Acts chapter 4. So if you want to be finding that chapter as we continue to study through the book of Acts together, Acts chapter 4. But I also want you to be finding John chapter 15. So uh, primarily we're going to be in Acts 4, but I want you to see something that Jesus says in John 15 that will certainly set up our study here in Acts chapter 4. When I was driving in this morning, I remembered a little incident that took place with me and my daughter, uh, Mary Claire, when she was about three years old. Um, We were in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, which comes as no surprise really to you, but we were in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and I was making my order. And here's how it went. I said, I'd please like a number one combo with uh, french fries and a sweet tea, and I also like a kid's meal with the chicken nuggets and a fruit cup. So made my order, and we're kind of in the in-between from the sign where you make the order and where you're actually going to pick up your food, right? And I saw Mary Clara in the rearview mirror get kind of a look on her face, and she said, well, Daddy, can I get French fries? And I said, well, well no, sweetheart, we're not going to get French fries. The, the French fries aren't really that good for you. And so I thought, take care of that, and, you know, she's three years old, and, and then I could see it happening, right? The little gears turning in the brain, and uh, then, then she asked this question, real simple question. Well, then, Daddy, why did you get French fries? And I just turned the radio up at that point, you know, just turned the radio up and just, uh, and just start talking about the toy that's going to come with your meal and so on and so on and so forth. But, but we understand, right, the, the principle in life is it's very frequently easier for us to tell others what they ought to do than it is for us to do them ourselves, I very much want to be a person who is not telling you that you ought to love the Bible and love the Scripture and want to feed on the Word of God. In my own life, I want to certainly be that way. But I also understand that our uh, physical appetite can, in fact, mirror our spiritual appetite. And I just um, give you an Adrian Rogers quote every week. So here's one. He says, you can't snack on the devil or can't uh, snack on the devil's goods all week and then expect to have appetite for God's word on Sundays, right? This is going to be how it's working. So John chapter 15, let's hear what the word of God says. If you've already seen the title of our uh, sermon today, How to Handle Persecution, it's what we're going to talk about. And so let's read something that Jesus says about persecution right here in John 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, it's a strong verb, isn't it? Not if the world, you know, kind of is annoyed with you. If the the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you are not of the world. You hear this, Christian? You are not of the world the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And and then you don't have to turn there, but I just want to read to you uh, in addition to what Jesus says, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul, writing to his a good friend Timothy, a younger man than him, says, 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, does anybody know this verse? Persecuted. 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So uh, we'll build off those verses here in Acts 4, but let's pray together before we go any further. Father, our, our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, said if the world hated him, if, and we're his followers, the world will hate us. And we just confess very readily that probably no one here longs to or desires to be hated. Nobody desires to be persecuted. Father, I pray that you'd use Acts 4 to edify us, um, give us grace to, to think sober-mindedly about these things, and that your word of God would instruct us for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study through Acts chapter 4. We're seeing very simply that as we talked last week that disciples of Jesus make disciples, right? So it's uh, incompatible to say I'm a disciple of Jesus, and then on the other hand to say I don't make any disciples of Jesus. That a disciple by his very nature, his or her nature, makes disciples. And so we're going to see very quickly as you make disciples, it's not as if the world's going to stand around and applaud you making disciples and be saying, we're so blessed as you continue to make disciples. So let's read Acts chapter 4. This is right after Peter. If you remember, he's uh, healed the, the lame man and then he's preached the gospel. In chapter 4, as he's preaching the gospel, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple And the Sadducees came upon them, and verse 2 teaches us their response. What were they? Greatly annoyed. Greatly disturbed. Because of what? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, this particular form of persecution comes from a group of people known as the Sadducees. And I think if you look at verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy. So we have to talk about the Sadducees for a moment because it's the Sadducees that bring this initial persecution. So let's have a real, real, real brief history lesson, all right? Just real brief. In those days, the majority of the population aligned themselves with one of four groups of people. In other words, if you were living in those days, you were in Jerusalem in those days, you would identify yourself primarily with one of four groups of people. One of them was the Sadducees. The others were the Sadducees, kind of arch rivals that you've heard of, the Pharisees. And then another was the Essenes and another was the Zealots. Now those terms, we won't, we won't linger real heavily on those terms, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. I just want you to hear for a moment where they stood. All right, so let's start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious. Uh, the Pharisees were what we might say they were, they, they were uh, the predominant teachers of the people. Now, who did Jesus have the most trouble with, by the way? The Pharisees. You know what their mentality was? The Pharisees stood in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas and said, we need to go back to the way things used to be. We just go back. We just back up uh, 100, 200, 300 years to the good old days, to the glory days, to the Maccabean days. That's what would make everything great again. We just need to go back to the way things used to be. But the way it played out is they were very rigid in what? Making other people eat fruit while they ate french fries, right? They told everybody else what they should do while they themselves, and Jesus put it this way, you put heavy burdens on the people of practices that you yourself don't do, right? That's how some people can be. They were good at telling you what to do, not so much at doing themselves. The Pharisees, they, they twisted the law of God to become the means of salvation instead of what God intended the law to be, not a means of salvation, but to demonstrate that you need salvation, right? It's a dangerous game to play. So that's the Pharisees. You need to go back to the way things used to be. Then you have the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees were sort of the political elite in Jerusalem. They were well-educated, these sharp group of people. And, and they come along, and while the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Rome, the Sadducees came to a point and said, you know what, I think we can work with them a little bit. So they had political clout, some political influence. Though smaller in number than the Pharisees, they had more influence politically. And they said, you know, I don't think it's necessarily we need to go back to the way things used to be. We can keep some of the old ways and go forward and progress with some of these new teachings of the Romans and the Greeks and just kind of take some of their technology and some of their ways of doing things. We'll go forward. We don't need to go back to the way things used to be. We need to be moving forward. So that's the Pharisees. That's the Sadducees. And then you have the Essenes. You know who the Essenes were? They just fed up with the whole mess. Uh, they, they thought the entire culture was corrupt. We don't need to go back. We need to go forward. We just need to be done with all of you. And they began to withdraw, right? The Essenes said not go back or go forward. They said, we're just going to go away. We're going to get out of here. We're moving out to these caves in Qumran, and we're just going to write Scripture down for our whole lifetime so that hundreds of years later somebody can throw a rock into a cave and find the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's actually what happened, all right? They're just going to go live out in the middle of nowhere. I don't want anything to do. Your politics are corrupt. Your religion is corrupt. Everything about you is corrupt. We're done with you, right? And they just, they just left, just checked out. I'm going to go live in the middle of nowhere. I don't want anything to do with anybody ever again, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. You're starting to feel that these lines of thought aren't so gone, right? We don't call them by these names anymore. We've come up with new names. And then there's another group called the uh, Zealots. And they agree with the Essenes that, hey, the whole thing's corrupt. But instead of going away, we're going to go against the zealots were a Jewish people who wanted Rome out, but instead of going away, they said, we'll go against it. And the number game, we can't play that. We can't go against their army. So we'll, uh, we'll go behind the scenes, and we'll have assassinations, and we'll just kind of try to corrupt the whole, or not corrupt the whole system, but go against the whole system and take key people out and subterfuge and sort of a CIA approach, right, of just going behind the scenes, and we'll take people, so on and so forth. And, 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 and there comes Jesus. So here's the question is, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And Jesus comes on the scene and all of them are saying, well, who are you with? Which group are you here with? Anybody know the answer to this? Who does Jesus stand with? One group says go back, one group says go forward, one group says go away, and one group says go against. And Jesus stands there and says, no, 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 you come to me. Come to me. He doesn't stand with any of them. And then his followers, as a matter of fact, at the end of the day, the only thing in particular the Pharisees and the Sadducees ever agreed on was what? We got to get rid of that guy, right? Jesus has got to go. So at the end of the Gospels, you see, surprise to surprise, perhaps the only time really in history, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they cooperate. And the Sadducees really think, okay, we finally moved past that whole Jesus thing, and we can go ahead, and then we get here to Acts 4. That's why it says in verse 2, they're greatly annoyed, greatly disturbed. Why? Because they thought we have finished this movement off. But have they finished the movement off? They haven't finished the movement off. So as the gospel advances, friends, what we begin to see is that there is an enemy to the gospel and he doesn't stand by idly. There is now going to be a counter attack. And one weapon not the only weapon, but one weapon in the enemy's arsenal is persecution. But you already, I'll go on and give you some good news. The enemy's arsenal, every weapon he's got, here's how glorious God is. 
every weapon the enemy has is ultimately used against him. The persecution that aims to thwart the advance of the gospel becomes the very means for the advance of the gospel. So let's read here Acts 4 and continue verse 3. And they arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? That a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Hey, there's a lot at stake in Acts chapter 4, isn't there? There's a lot at stake in Acts 4. What would have happened? What would have happened if they'd come and said, no more speaking in Jesus' name, and Peter and John said, okay, okay, we'll stop, right? Now, now we know, that's uh, totally hypothetical, we know that would have never happened because the Holy Spirit's coming, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what we want to do is use Acts 4 to inform us on how to handle Persecution. So if you've got an outline, I was going to be four, uh, four sort of principles from Acts 4. Is First of all, I think it would be helpful if you just, number one, just expect it. Number one, expect it. Expect persecution to come. We started in John 15, right? If the world hated me, it will hate you. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 12. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, um, uh, again, persecution, persecution is not the only weapon that the enemy has, but ultimately every weapon is designed for this purpose, 
to prevent you from speaking and witnessing about Jesus. Now, persecution is a weapon. You know what another weapon is? Just to wrap you up in sin, right? I can guarantee you this. If you've got a stronghold sin in your life today, whether it's anger or lust or jealousy or pornography, I can guarantee you, if you're wrapped up in a stronghold sin today, you're not being a bold witness of Jesus. That's just how it's going to work, right? Because it'll sap all the joy, all the vitality out of your life. That weapon is formed, and it's coming in Acts 4. That's a weapon. Here's another weapon is persecution. Both weapons, the same goal, to simply get you to not speak boldly about Christ. So, so one, when it comes to persecution, we should expect it. Now, do Peter and John have government leaders defending their right to preach? Did Peter and John have rights guaranteeing their safety? Anybody know the answer to those questions? They didn't have anybody in the government to go appeal to. Now, I hope and pray, I hope and pray that the right to proclaim the gospel is always protected by our government, but that was not their hope. And so it won't be my hope. So let me ask these questions again. Did Peter and John have government leaders defending their right to preach? And did Peter and John have rights guaranteeing their safety? And did the gospel advance? So where I want to land with that is, ultimately my hope is not in a government that protects my right to preach. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to go on and say here in 2016, we can play this back at some other time in the future, there are increasingly clear indicators that days are approaching when the bold and clear proclamation of the gospel may not be protected. So I'll say today, and I hope it's our aim, uh, may, may we have the fullness of the Spirit and the boldness to declare, like Peter and John, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We need to go in and mark it down. We will ex- expect it. We will expect persecution. I find it interesting here as the, uh, as the disciples, the apostles were proclaiming the gospel, the first kickback came from influential government leaders who desired to uh, move the culture, quote, forward. I think you might find it will be the same in our own lifetime. When persecution comes, there's only one thing that will keep us proclaiming. You know what it is? It's the question that Jesus started with Peter back after the resurrection. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than your own life? More than your own safety? More than your own comfort? More than your own reputation? More than your own ease? More than your own family? So how to handle persecution, how to handle persecution begins with expecting it. We should view persecution not as unlikely, but as inevitable. I think it's also worth pointing out that persecution is not something that we kind of long for, you know what I mean? Uh, We don't pursue persecution, we do pursue Christ, and there are times as you pursue Christ that persecution will come. The only way to guarantee that you'll never have persecution in your life is to never speak boldly about Jesus. In, In other words, the enemy targets those who have the mission of the Great Commission as their life's mission. Uh, Peter and John were arrested, but friends, the gospel could not be arrested, right? It's a joyful fact of persecution. They can arrest you. They can find you. even kill you. But they cannot arrest or kill the gospel. In fact, as we'll continue to see in Acts, very often the very attempts to prevent the gospel from advancing are the very means of the gospel advancing. 
So in your own heart today, can you ask the question, is persecution something that I expect? One, we would ex- expect it, not long for it, not desire it, not so forth, but expect it. And if it were to come, be like Peter and John, consider ourselves blessed that the Lord counted us worthy of it. Uh, number two, we'll focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Uh, several years ago now, I was in uh, Mumbai, or Bombay, India, same, same city, and uh, on, on a Sunday afternoon, I got with a translator, his name was Vilas, and we got on a train, and we rode out to this house church, and we got there, and there were about eight or nine people there, and uh, Vilas, as we walked in the door, said, hey, do you mind, uh, do you mind uh, sharing a word from Scripture with us? I said, I'd be glad to, be glad to. So open up the Bible, and for about 20 minutes, about 20 minutes, uh, share with them, I think it was from uh, Luke 15, on the parable of the prodigal son, of God's great love for us, and his great grace for us, and, and they were sitting there, and they loved it, and we talked a little bit, and Vilas would translate, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an American, so uh, you know, we wrap up, and 30 minutes or so, say amen, and, uh, and I'm standing there, and then my translator doesn't move, and I'm, you know, I said, what, what's going on here, you know, blessing, closing prayer, go about our day. He, he said, uh, do you have something else that you can share from the word of God for the people here. Several of them have come from hours away. They, Sunday, they want to hear the word. I said, uh, I said okay, so uh, let's open it back up to Luke 16. Let's, let's study Luke, Luke 16. So read, study, uh, share, share the gospel, uh, preach the word, uh, another 25, 30 minutes. Amen. They still sit there. And um, he says they want to hear more. Want to hear more. I said, well, I, I get used to this. Let's open up the Bible again and, and study the scripture again. Do y'all have any questions? Have any questions? Do you have any questions? Yeah, we got lots of questions. Here's a question. And then here comes all these questions, one right after the other. And uh, finally, uh, Vila said, well, we need to go or we're going to miss the train. And I said, well, okay. We sat there all day long. A couple of days later, we went out to uh, a village. We left the city. And we're uh, in, in, in uh, just this out there place. In fact, I'll never forget, I was walking into this little dirt path, and it's me and Vilas again, and we're walking in, and I had to stop, I think, it, and tie my shoe. So I stopped and tied my shoe on the path, and I stand up and I begin to walk again. And about 20 yards ahead of me is a scene out of Indiana Jones. This snake that had to have been the length of this stage just rumbles right across our path. And I, and I thought to myself, if I hadn't stopped to tie my shoe, he would have walked right in between my, uh, tied me up and eaten me. Just, just one, it's probably, well, probably what he had planned to do. And then he got, oh, he's got to tie his shoe. So he just kept, kept going for the next guy, I guess. And um, I kind of stopped and pointed at the snake and, uh, and my translator said, yes, snake. I, I said, yeah, no, no, there's got to be another word for that. That's not snake, that is monster. I don't know. So we continued to walk into the village and um, walking around a little bit and this villager guy comes out you know, got there and he kind of yells something at the translator uh, and Vilas, he laughs and we kept walking and I said, well what did he say? He said he wanted to know if you were from National Geographic. That's the only person who looks like you that they've ever seen was from National Geographic. And so I said, well okay, so we continue to walk a little bit and uh, go into the village and um, knock on a the door, they invite us in and share the gospel friends friends i shared the gospel with them the end of sharing i said has anybody ever told you this you know what they said never heard this never heard this in our life and we kept going a little bit house to house 
And then I'm thinking, man, this is a great day. This is great. Good share the gospel. I didn't get eaten by a snake. And, and then I look down the road. We're, we're kind of going down the path. It's, it's not a road. It's a dirt path. And uh, four or five houses that way are these guys, and I just can only go by what I've read and seen. They just look straight out of the Taliban. That's what they look like. Wearing all white, long beards. And I said to Vilas, who, who are they? And he says, you know who they are. I said, what are they doing? They said, they're like us. They're going house to house, sharing what they believe. I said, uh, can, we, can we go back to that house church? You know, can we? Because <laughs> I, I, was, I was sort of thinking, I'm just being honest with you. If we get to the same house at the same time, how is this going to go? You know what I mean? Like, a, you know, they, they, they don't look like the friendliest people. And I'll just be honest with you. I wish I could say otherwise. I got scared, kind of fearful. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. Something happens to me, nobody ever even knew where I was. And I looked at Vilos, and I was going to look for some reassurance. But you know what? He looked scared. And then I was really scared. And I said, well, what do you think we should do? And here's what he said. What do you think our master would want us to do? Okay. <laughs> and I started thinking, let me find some reassurance in the scripture here. Whenever you share the gospel, no harm will ever come. Oh, that's not really in there, is it? Here's the verse I remembered, and it didn't reassure me very much. I send you out as sheep among wolves. And I started, man, I need to memorize some more scripture. Isn't there something else? There's something else in here. There's something else in here. And then I, I will tell you, as I thought on that verse, is why all scripture is helpful. Sheep, wolves, sheep. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sheep have a shepherd, right? Sheep have a shepherd. But I want to be a faithful proclaimer of the scripture. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that everything's going to go smooth. Now, you already know that they uh, did me no harm, right? But it was a reality check in my own heart. I I, I kind of did think for a moment, maybe we would just leave. Here's what happened. We did end up coming very close to the same house, and I was walking up, and I'm just praying, and sheep among wolves, and so on and so forth. We got up to them, and they looked at us, and then huge smiles on their faces. Hello, good morning. And then they kind of walked by, and I was like, okay, they kept going, and I, and I kept going. That's what happened. But it might not always be what happens. As a matter of fact, we'll see here in the book of Acts, there was no guarantee for Peter and John that that evening everything was going to be all right. We'll see this in Acts. Some will be thrown in prison and miraculously delivered by angels. We're just a couple of chapters away from that. Others will be thrown in prison and executed. And Luke, the author of Acts, will not offer much in the way of explanation of why one here and the other there. But friends, think about this. If you're a follower of Christ, you're already free. It doesn't really matter what prison they throw you in. You're already free. They might take your life. That's all right. If I'm understanding the scripture right, we've already lost our life when we came to Christ, right? If you've really come to Christ, uh, any man who comes after me must take up his own cross. You know what a cross is? It's a means of execution. Take up his own cross and follow me. There are some people, there are some people who think you can follow Jesus and not take up your own cross. And you know what? It's a great filter between determining one and the other. Here it is. Persecution. Persecution. Because if you think you're going to follow Jesus, but he didn't take up your own cross, as soon as persecution comes, you say, all right, you know, I wasn't really all that serious about this anyway. Apostle Paul says to live is Christ. 
for you, for you is living Christ. Is living about Christ. Proclaiming Christ, loving Christ, sharing Christ, obeying Christ. And he said, for me to live is Christ. He said this statement when his life was on the line, right? He's in prison, writing Philippians. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And nothing quite clarifies whether we're holding to a Christ-centered, Christ-honoring faith or a shallow and false man-centered faith quite like persecution. So expect it, and then when it comes, focus on Jesus. They arrested them, put them in custody till the next day. No attorney to call, no rights to hold, because it was already evening. So one, we expect, two, we focus on Jesus. Three, we speak boldly. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and then a little bit later on here in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, word gets back to the church that they're in prison, and they begin to pray, and look what they pray. They don't actually pray, that Lord, help them get free from prison. They say, Acts 4, 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. End of verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Because what is the persecution about? Just see if you uh, hear a word that keeps popping up. I'm going to read verse uh, 17. But in order that they might spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak. And then in verse 19, or verse 20, Peter says, we cannot but speak. What's this all about? Now, what does it mean to speak boldly? What's that word mean? It does not necessarily mean loudly. If I'm going to speak bold, I've got to scream or I've got to yell. What the Greek word uh, means with great specificity is you speak clearly. It means without hesitation. It means as you speak, people will know here's the point that they're trying to make. Have you ever listened to someone speak and for a long time you say, I don't, you don't have to say amen specifically to me at this moment. I, I, I don't have any idea what they're trying to say. I don't have any idea what point they're making. It's election season, we can all say yes. No, I, that was, move on. Let me ask you this. Can I give you an example of bold speaking? How about Acts 2 verse 36? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How about chapter 3, verses 19 to 21? Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That's bold, clear speaking, isn't it? When you share the gospel, it should be clear what you're asking people to believe and what you're asking people to reject. And this is what they're trying to stop them from doing. Now the question I ask myself and ask our church family is does persecution even need to come before we stop speaking? Or do we just stop speaking before the persecution even comes? Before the heat's even turned up a little bit? Before anyone gets greatly annoyed? I wonder. Um, There was a certain football game on last Sunday, right? Many of you Carolina 
Panther fans, perhaps. And we'll put it to you this way. Uh, the Denver Broncos defense was amazing, wasn't it? And they had a uh, clear plan of attack. Let's take number one down, right? Rush that passer, knock him down, keep him from beginning going in the game. And did the plan succeed? You can go on to say, yeah, yeah, it did. 24 to 10. Now, now um, and when we're talking about a strategy in sports, when you scout somebody or scout an opposing team, uh, their responsibility is to say, well, we need to stop them. This is their strength. We need to stop them from doing this. If we stop them from doing this, then we'll win. So if we take that metaphor and apply it to the spiritual realm, if the enemy says, we've got to stop the gospel from going forth in Rocky Mount, here's the question. Does the enemy need to consider you in his plans of preventing the gospel from going forth? Right? Because I've been on teams, and I've been the person on the team. If they're going to try to keep us from winning, I, I, it doesn't really matter what I do, right? If we're going to be their basketball team. Who's that guy? You don't have to worry about him. He can't shoot. He can't rebound. He can't even run up and down the court. Not to worry. But that person you need to worry about, right? We'll see this in just a few chapters when Paul is preaching in Ephesus, and these other guys try to rip off his gospel and try to kind of heal in his name. The spiritual forces of wickedness say, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? You know what I'm saying? If the enemy's counterattack is going to come and prevent the gospel from going forth in Rocky Mount, in a manner of speaking, and I think you know what I'm saying, does he have to worry about you? Does he have to worry about your family? Does he have to worry about, oh, I can't, oh no, they're in the neighborhood now, the gospel's going out. The number one reason the enemy sends persecution is to prevent you from continuing on the mission God gave us of making disciples. So we'll flip that statement upside down. The number one reason we face no persecution is because we're not about his mission, the Lord's mission. But here's the, here's the, here's the dynamic thing. Look at this. Read with me Acts 4.4. 4. Persecution comes, Acts 4.4. 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Did you hear this? So they, they proclaim a message. Then they're persecuted. And then people believe. What's the connection between those things? I think it's this. They proclaim these things. They persecuted them for saying these things. But they continue to proclaim these things. So they must really believe these things. It's not some passing fad for them. It's not some teaching of the moment. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Right. I love, um, I love verse 13 and 14. It's a, such a um, glorious contradiction to who Peter had been uh, by that charcoal fire the night of Jesus' betrayal, isn't it? In many ways, the same scenario, but he's totally different. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter, right? Remember back at the charcoal fire? There, was anything, there wasn't anything bold about Peter. He was the opposite of bold. I don't even know him, right? They were... And perceived that they were uneducated and common men. They were astonished. It astonishes the Sadducees because the Sadducees were all about we're influential, we're powerful because we're educated. And who are these common fishermen? Good news, friends. The gospel goes forth by common people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of the living God. There's not a certain level of education and so on that you have to obtain. It's this. This is the marker. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. So, so fourth and final thing here is that trust God, trust God uses persecution for good. 
Look at, uh, just flip to two other scriptures briefly. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 4. Um, what we'll see is the, the form of persecution ramps up as we go through Acts. They arrested you, put you in prison. Uh, it won't be long before they start doing things like in Acts 7 when they stone Stephen. They kill him. It says in Acts 8.1, Saul approved of his execution... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, if you're studying through Acts, some, some phrases ought to hit your ears. I've heard that somewhere before, right? Um, remember Acts 1.8? You'll be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, the gospel has been advancing in Jerusalem, but the gospel hasn't gotten out of Jerusalem and into Judea. So who takes the gospel, two questions, who takes the gospel from Jerusalem to the Judea and to Samaria? And then second question is, how did that happen? Well, the first question is, it wasn't the apostles who did it, right? A1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Peter and John and their like stayed in Jerusalem, right? So... So, who takes the gospel? Verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Who are these people? Just people. Common, ordinary, church members, if you will. How about Acts 11, verse 19? Last verse we'll look at. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So, so, so they take the gospel to Antioch. And at first they're sharing the gospel with the Jews, and that'll change as we continue on through Acts. But, but you, you already know the point that I'm trying to make, right? Gospel's going forth. The enemy says, we've got to stop it, send persecution, sends persecution. And instead of stopping it, the very persecution intended to stop the advance of the gospel becomes the means of spreading the gospel. So the purposes of God, back up to Acts 1-8, are mysterious, right? They're, they're unstoppable, they're unstoppable. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth they're clear, but it's also mysterious. How am I going to move my people from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth? Well, here's one way. Because as they proclaim, not everybody's going to be excited in Jerusalem. And not everybody's going to be excited in Judea. And not everybody's going to be excited in Samaria. And not everybody's going to be excited around the uttermost parts of the earth. There will be persecution. But that persecution, instead of stomping out the gospel, becomes the means of spreading the gospel. Well, um, we're going to pray in just a moment. We're going to enter a time of invitation. So the invitation is a couple things. Is, is number one, I'd ask you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you, are you living in such a way that you're on mission with him? His mission of making disciples is your mission. Uh, you, you, invitation for you this morning might best be to pray that you'll sustain underneath the pressure of the persecution that will inevitably come. Second is this. 
if the enemy, and he, and he is, I believe, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the spiritual forces of wickedness. If he's ushering all his forces to prevent the gospel from going forth in Rocky Mount, are you on the radar screen? You know what I mean? So we've got to watch out for so-and-so. I don't mean that that we'd be made much of. But if we're full of the Holy Spirit, we love people, put others first, and speak the gospel, show up. And just know that persecution will, will come. Maybe you'd say this morning I'm totally out of the game. I'm totally out of the game. I, I am no more involved in advancing the gospel than anything. My life's really about me. My priorities, self-directed plans, so on and so forth. Good news, the Lord's willing today <laughs> to get you involved. And there may also be someone here today. You need to hear the bold proclama- proclamation of the scripture. Repent, therefore, and turn that your sins may be blotted out. Because the, the, the deal with persecution is it, it can lead us to think that those who are really weak are really strong and those who are really strong are really weak. He's the King of Kings. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's not come to persecute you. As a matter of fact, the gospel teaches that he's been persecuted on our behalf. He was crucified to a cross, crucified on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Let's stand together. We're going to pray together. Let's take a cue from the church there in Jerusalem that we will pray not that our lives are easy, not that our lives are comfortable, not that anybody never gets annoyed or bothered by us, but grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Let's pray together. Have a time of invitation. Father, I pray that you give us grace. Again, we're not... We're, we're, we're not asking or longing for persecutions. Well, I do pray that you give us grace to love you so much that when persecution comes, we are willing to endure it, are willing to expect it. Not think something strange or out of the ordinary is happening. As a matter of fact, if there's anything strange or out of the ordinary, it would be that we wouldn't be persecuted if we're boldly proclaiming the gospel. Help us simultaneously to expect it and then to bless and love the very ones that persecution might come from. And we need help with this, Father. Because in our flesh, if somebody reviles us, we want to revile back. But blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I pray that you give us grace to endure persecution because we know we're not of this world. We're bound for another kingdom. Father, you use everything in the enemy's arsenal against him. At the very means that he seeks to prevent the advance of the gospel and your sovereignty, you use for the furtherance for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.